We continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter five, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I think all of us have heard of escape rooms It's the place you go and you get locked in a room and you gotta solve the puzzle to get out. We're familiar with escape rooms. Probably uh, not so familiar with what are called rage rooms, but they're a real thing. In fact, there's uh, there's one in Houston, Texas, Sean Baker. She was the one that, that came up with this space, this place called a rage room. And her company called Tantrums, appropriate name for it, makes these rooms where they basically allow their clients to blow off their steam, blow off their anger, blow off their rage with baseball bats and inanimate objects. And it's a business that makes money, which tells you something about the anger of our culture. The anger that you and I know well, anger is not something that we, we say, wow, that's out there. Anger is something that you and I know well at a heart level. And yet these rage rooms are an attempt to try to find space to get rid of your anger. It doesn't work. Might be fun for a moment, doesn't work. Pastor Frederick Buechner said this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself the skeleton at the feast is you. Anger destroys relationships. Anger destroys marriages. Anger destroys communities. Which is why it's appropriate that Jesus' first application in the Sermon on the Mount coming out of his description of God's law and fulfilling it, his first application 
has to do with anger and the need to reconcile. Everyone has harbored anger at some point, and everyone has seen that anger destroy, hurt, harm relationships. Reconciliation is critical, but reconciliation is really difficult. So that's the question. Why is reconciliation so important and yet so difficult? Let's start with the why, the why of reconciliation. Why is it so important? Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said over and over in his Sermon on the Mount. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is that the rabbis who were the expounders of God's law had interpreted God's law in an insufficient way, in a way that was dangerously incomplete. So here, you shall not murder. That's accurate. That's spot on. That's the sixth commandment. Nothing wrong with that. Even the consequence of murder Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Even that consequence could be tied to Genesis chapter nine, verse six. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, the, by man shall his blood be shed. So Jesus doesn't have an issue with you shall not murder. He has an issue with the incomplete, dangerously incomplete interpretation of the sixth commandment which goes well beyond physical murder. You see, the problem with this approach of the, the rabbis as they were orally teaching this is that most people and most people in this room have never physically murdered anybody. And so that command is, there's a quick, yes, I know who, do, who does those kind of things, that's not me. There's an immediately, you, you check yourself off the list. And so therefore, reconciliation that's so important isn't an issue, not to mention it's really hard to reconcile with someone you physically murdered. This was problematic. And Jesus knew it which is why he corrected this problem in verse 22. He says, but I say to you, this is the God of eternity past in human flesh, correcting this problem and, interpret and interpreting God's law correctly. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Couple terms here, the council. That was the Sanhedrin. That would be like the, the Jewish Supreme Court. Hell of fire, that, that literally meant the Gehenna of fire. Gehenna, that was a, a Greek word that was the word that described a, a, a physical valley in the Old Testament. It was a rubbish pit with smoldering fires that became symbolic of the eternal place of punishment or hell. It's 
why it was called the hell of fire. Now, a couple words in here. The word for insults, right? When your brother insults you, that word is actually uh, raka. It's, a, it's an abusive expression. It can mean you fool or you numbskull. It's a very abusive, harsh expression. Uh, you fool would be similar to saying uh, you moron, you idiot. These were phrases that were highly contemptuous. They were, they were full of hatred towards the person they were being spoken to. They were filled with, with anger. They were filled with rage. But what I want you to see here is the progression, right? Sinful anger in, in, the, in thought progresses into harmful words being spoken, which eventually, unchecked, progresses into physical harm being done, right? So sinful anger progresses to verbal assault or harm, which eventually progresses to physical assault or harm. In other words, anger is the seed of murder. Anyone who has physically murdered someone, you back that up and it starts with the seed of anger that gets nurtured, that gets watered until it grows into something. Verbal assault, physical assault, that's where it, it goes. And so the seed of anger, which when I talk about physical murder, most of you check out. But when I talk about anger, nobody checks out on that one. And that seed of anger, when you dwell on it, when you chew on it, when you think about it, it, that's watering it and nurturing it, and it grows and it grows and it grows. How many of you have ever rehearsed in your mind the speech that you are going to give someone who has sinned against you? I mean, you rehearse the words that you know that you want to speak to them to inflict harm. Or how many of you have gone past the speech in your mind beyond the words to thinking about how you could physically harm that person? And I would say that you've been there if you've lived long enough and have gotten hurt deep enough by someone. That's how your flesh responds, is to think about words, maybe even actions, Anger is the seed of murder, and if you water it and you nurture it, it will grow. That's why reconciliation is so important. In a 1994 article titled, Wars, Lethal Leftovers, Threaten Europeans, Associated Press reporter Christopher Burns wrote this, the bombs of World War II are still killing in Europe. They turn up and sometimes blow up at construction sites, in fishing nets, or on beaches 50 years after the guns fell silent. Hundreds, at the time of this article, hundreds and tons of explosives were being recovered and uncovered in France. The, the Interior Ministry of France said 13 bombs, old bombs exploded in France last year, killing. 12 people and wounding 11. 
These are bombs from World War II. They're going off. One woman who was on a government team that was responsible for defusing these bombs from World War I and World War II said she had lost colleagues. And she said, as these, over time, these bombs become more dangerous because they corrode on the inside. The, de the, you know, the detonation is exposed. What is true of lingering bombs is true of lingering anger. What anger do you have buried in your heart? What anger that's buried in your heart are you nurturing and watering by dwelling on it, by thinking on it, by chewing on it? This is why reconciliation is so important because you may have experienced this, but when you bury anger in your heart at some point, when you least expect it, it explodes. And it explodes on someone, usually the person you have anger towards, and it's destructive. That's why reconciliation is so important. Now let's move on to the win of reconciliation. Looked at the why, but, but when, when are we to reconcile? Jesus makes this real subtle shift in verse 23 in this passage that you won't pick up because of the realities of the English language. Okay. In English, you plural and you singular are the same. But what we notice here in verse 21, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you is plural. But when we get to verse 23, so if you are offering your gift, that's you singular. Which means Jesus is getting very personal at this moment. He's calling for you to examine your heart. He's calling you to examine what's inside and to examine your anger. He's getting very personal at this point. And he gives two illustrations to, to, to show or to teach the seriousness of anger and the reason why there's so much urgency to reconcile. He uses an example from the temple worship setting, and then he uses an example from the judicial setting. All right, so the worship setting, verses 23 to 24. If you were offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This was a Jewish worshiper going to the temple to worship would be similar to you coming to worship today, except we don't bring animal sacrifices because Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. But this is prior to Jesus' sacrifice they would come and bring their animal sacrifice. And, and Jesus says, if, if, if you're harboring, if someone's harboring anger against you, you need to go and be reconciled. Leave your gift at the altar. Now, we would say, does anything take priority over the worship of God? And the answer would be, no. Nothing should take priority over the worship of God. And yet we see here, it appears that Jesus is saying, hey, put worship aside for a second, go reconcile. In reality, what Jesus is teaching here is absolutely upholding the priority of the worship of God 
by teaching a true, a truth that we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. True worship of God and hatred towards someone cannot coexist. Which is why Jesus is teaching here the urgency of reconciliation. There's an urgency to it. He reinforces it with his second example from a judicial setting, verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Interesting here, he says your accuser, not your brother. Jesus now is bringing it to a situation of your accuser, your adversary, your opponent, your enemy. So Jesus doesn't stop short and say, hey, you need to go reconcile with your brother or your sister in Christ. He takes it a step further and says, no, this applies to even your enemy, even your opponent, even your adversary. There's this urgency to reconcile. The win of reconciliation is, is now. There's an urgency, but I wanna speak into another aspect of the win of reconciliation. Not so much timing, but under what circumstance are you called to reconcile? In other words, when, in a, in a circumstance situation, are you called to reconcile? In both of these illustrations, there's a profound truth that can easily get overlooked. Neither illustration that Jesus gives speaks of your anger. Rather, it speaks of your offense that has provoked someone else's anger. Now, why is that important? What comes more naturally to you? To remember how someone has sinned against you or to remember how you have sinned against someone? That's a really easy answer. It comes very natural for us to remember when someone has offended us, when someone has offended you and, 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 and prompted and provoked anger in you. That is most natural. But remembering how you have offended someone else and provoked their anger, that's less natural. And yet that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's the, uh, it's the log and the speck principle that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter seven, verse three. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Generally speaking, the way people have sinned against us is the, is the log and the way that we have sinned against others is the speck. And yet Jesus completely flips that around. 
which means on a practical level, for every thought you give towards someone sinning against you, you should give 10 thoughts to how you may have sinned against someone else and provoked their anger. Reconciliation is not just when I'm angry and someone has sinned against me. Reconciliation is, have, have I done something to someone else that has provoked their anger? And do I need to go move towards them in reconciliation? All right, so the question I put before you is not how has someone sinned against you and made you angry? I don't have to encourage you to think about that. That's natural. No, the question I put before you is, how have you offended or sinned against someone else provoking their anger and therefore having the need of reconciliation? Let me put one caveat on this. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness requires one. Jesus calls you to forgive. And that simply means that when someone has sinned against you and you say, I forgive them, you're saying, I'm not gonna hurt them back. I'm not gonna make them pay. That's something Jesus calls you to. And that only takes you to forgive. Reconciliation involves two parties. And for there to be reconciliation, the other person needs to own what they've done and needs to own their sin. Otherwise, there's no reconciliation. Or if you're not owning what you've done or owning your sin, there is no reconciliation. So reconciliation involves two parties. Forgiveness involves one, which means that you are called urgently to forgive, which says, I'm not gonna make them pay. I'm not gonna hurt, hurt them back. Reconciliation involves two parties. Let's move on to the how. The why, the win of reconciliation. We're gonna spend time on the how because reconciliation is very difficult. Reconciliation is very difficult. One of the reasons that we don't prioritize reconciliation is that we feel very justified in our anger. Right? We feel very justified in our anger. We would, a lot of times, in fact, I'll say this probably several times, 99% of the time, we probably feel justified in our anger. We feel like our anger falls into the righteous anger category that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter four, verses 26 to 27. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We read that and think, exactly. I can be angry and not sin. And that's 99% of my anger. And Jesus would say, no, it's probably flip-flopped. I can be angry and not sin. I have righteous anger. It's, it's justified anger. Right? We feel that. We experience that. And then we say, well, hey, Jesus got righteously angry. So I'm following a good example with this. Let's explore that for a second. When did Jesus get angry? Think about it. When did Jesus get angry and, and why did he get angry? 
Well, we've got the Matthew 21, John 2 example. When Jesus got upset, got angry as he walked into the temple and he started flipping tables. He flipped over the tables of those selling sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He flipped their their tables over as well. Why? Because his father's house had become a house of trade. Or Mark chapter three, Jesus was angry with those who for legalistic and hypocritical reasons were trying to find something wrong with him healing on the Sabbath. What you'll notice with every situation that Jesus gets angry, what you'll notice is that in none of those cases is his personal ego involved. In other words, it's it's never Jesus responding in anger because he personally is attacked or his personal ego is involved. Now, we can all just be honest and say, with us, it's very different. Most of the time that we get angry, our personal ego is involved. In fact, our anger burns hottest when we feel personally attacked or our personal ego is involved. And it burns the coolest when it's a sin and justice issue that doesn't really directly affect us. And to take it a step further, even when we say, no, this is a sin and justice issue that I'm angry over. And we, we, we accurately evaluate right and wrong and we're ang- righteously angry over the injustice. Even in that situation, we can become so personally attached to it such that when an opponent pushes back, we feel personally attacked. And so even in that situation where you say, I am, I am practicing righteous anger, and we feel as though we're defending the right and the truth, deep down, we're still really defending ourselves and our take on the issue. It's that slippery how quickly our personal egos get involved and how we respond in anger. Now, back to Jesus. I said, his anger never resulted from his personal ego being involved. Interesting, how did Jesus respond when he had every reason to let his personal ego be involved? In other words, when Jesus was personally attacked, how did he respond? When he was unjustly arrested, when he was unfairly tried, when he was illegally beaten, when he was contemptuously mocked and spit upon, when he had every reason for his personal ego to be involved, how did Jesus respond? 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, which means insulted, He did not revile or insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
When Jesus was personally attacked, he didn't get angry. And not only did he not get angry, what did he say? Luke chapter 23, verse 34, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not only did he not get angry and not respond in anger, but he actually responded with grace and with kindness. Now you say, great. I've got a great example to follow. Let's just leave here, let's go home, and let's follow Jesus' example. You're gonna fail miserably if you try to do that. Because there's something much deeper in your heart that is controlling your angry behavior. And if you don't unpack what that deeper thing in your heart is that's controlling your anger, then you, you will never have any chance of following Jesus' example of speaking kindness to somebody instead of getting angry at them. Sinful anger, which I said is a, probably at least 99% of your anger, okay? Sinful anger is probably at least 99% of your anger. So let's just say it's, it's most of your anger. Okay? Sinful anger is a direct result of something being threatened that you hold dear. Sinful anger is a direct result of something being threatened that you hold dear. If you hold comfort dear, then anything that threatens your comfort is going to get a dose of your rage. And if you've been a parent, you can understand this. If your reputation is what you hold dear, then anything that threatens your reputation will get a dose of your anger. Or if success is what you hold dear, then anything that threatens your success is gonna get a dose of your rage. Or if financial security is what you hold dear, then anything that threatens your financial security, market crash, whatever it may be, lose your job, is gonna get a dose of your anger and a dose of your rage. The only way that you get rid of sinful anger is if what you hold dear changes. And the only way that what you hold dear can change is if you understand that you are held dear by someone. God had every right to carry out the sentence of verse 26 on you because of your sin. God had every right to put you in the prison of hell and not let you out 
until you paid the last penny of your sin debt, which was impossible. But because God held you dear and loved you deeply, God put forth his one and only son, Jesus Christ, whom he held dear in your place. God poured out his righteous anger on his son who had done nothing wrong. God had his son, Jesus, pay every last penny for a crime that he did not commit. And God did this out of a deep love for you. You were so dear to him that he offered up what he held dear, his only son, to get you back so that you could be reconciled to him. Now we're talking about reconciliation and the priority of reconciliation. I will say this. Until you are reconciled with your maker, God the Father, you will struggle mightily to be reconciled horizontally. That's where reconciliation starts because when you realize, as I said in the confession and assurance, when you realize that in Christ, God has turned his face towards you and he will never turn away. When you sin, he doesn't turn away and then turn back when you repent. That's not what God does. In Christ, his face is on you. As you are walking away, as you're running headlong in sin, his face is on you. When you repent, you turn and you see the loving eyes of a father with arms wide open. That's the love of God. He holds you dear. And when you receive that and you, and you believe that and you experience in that, suddenly... Now you have a heavenly comfort. You have a heavenly success. You have a heavenly reputation. You have a heavenly security that nothing in this world can threaten. And now, when someone attacks your reputation, when someone attacks your comfort, earthly comfort, when someone attacks your earthly security, when someone attacks your earthly success, you don't have to get angry because you have a heavenly comfort, success, reputation, security that can't be threatened. And now rather than responding in anger, now you can respond with the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them the kind and gracious words of reconciliation. Marcus Doe embraced angry vengeance and few would have questioned him on it. He was raised in Liberia during the Civil War. He saw the atrocities of war as a young child that every parent would try to shield their child from. At nine years old, his, his mother became ill and died. As the war ratcheted up and it became more dangerous, he and one of his brothers fled. They jumped on a ship that took him to a refugee camp in Ghana. 
It was at this refugee camp that he was mocked. He was made fun of. He and his brother were poor. They had nothing. He encountered malaria numerous times. And then at age 11, he received a letter or two from his brothers that were still back in Liberia. And these letters revealed that his father, who served as an assistant director with Liberia's Secret Service, had been captured and murdered. Now at 11 years old, he's an orphan. No mother, no father. Marcus Doe is now a pastor, but he reflects back on that day as 11-year-old that he received those letters, and this is what he said. When I received those letters revealing that his father had been captured and murdered, something changed in my heart. I became vengeful. I told myself at age 12, I'm going to find the man that killed my father and take his life. His life goal became tracking down the soldier or soldiers that had made him an orphan and making them pay. He said he daydreamed about revenge. He said he cried himself to sleep most nights. And then in his 20s, he read the passage in Matthew 6, Jesus' words on the call to forgive. And this is what he said. Guilt overwhelmed me. I had chosen to nurse my desire for vengeance. I realized that I could relinquish them once and for all. I begged God to forgive me. I would let go of revenge and rage. Then in 2010, at the age of 31, this is about 20 years after he left Liberia, he decided to go back to Liberia and to find the man or men who had killed his father, not to seek revenge, but to forgive them. And when he got back, he realized that his father's killer had already died in the fighting. But he sat in a barbershop, and it was in this barbershop with about 10 men that he realized these were former child soldiers that would have taken his life 20 years ago. In fact, the barber that was trimming his hair was a former rebel that would have taken his life 20 years ago. They said, why did you come back? And he said, to come see and visit people like you. You all would have taken my life 20 years ago. And he said, it was an amazing time. Tears were shed. He said, it was a beautiful moment of reconciliation. What anger do you have buried in your heart? With whom are you harboring anger for? Or who may be harboring some anger towards you? You can water, you can nurture that anger. or you can remember that you have been reconciled to a God who pursued you when you were offending him 
and sinning against him daily. And he gave up what he held dear, his son, so that he could have you, who he holds dear. When you focus on that reconciliation and then you turn your eyes to the person who has offended you or the way you have offended someone and you're harboring that anger, it's there that you find the power to move forward in forgiveness and reconciliation. Because there is great joy And there is great peace in being reconciled and in forgiving. I go back to that that opening quote. Frederick Buechner says it well. Anger being a feast for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger only destroys you. Yes, it destroys others, but it destroys you. When you come to Jesus, you recognize that he laid down his life for you when you didn't deserve it. He paid to the last penny for a crime he didn't commit out of his love for you. Then you can be overwhelmed with that love and not respond in anger. But give the words, Father, forgive them. That person who's hurt me, intentionally, maliciously. Father, forgive them. And if that person becomes aware of their sin, owns their sin, then you can experience the sweet moment of reconciliation. But whether reconciliation happens or not, because that takes two parties, it's out of your hands, you can forgive and be released from the chains of harboring this anger that's all about getting back, paying back revenge. Let's pray. Father, we live in a broken world where hurt is real, where offense is real, where sin is real. In this room, there are a number of us who are harboring anger over the way we were treated, the way we were sinned against. And Father, there's a lot of people, maybe outside this room or maybe in this room, that are harboring anger because of the way that we have treated them. Oh, Father, would you, by your Spirit, Empower us to forgive and in forgiveness to move forward towards people in reconciliation. Father, there may be some here that have been harboring anger and been in estranged relationships for decades, years. We pray for reconciliation. We pray for sweet reconciliation. And that it might be a testimony to ultimately your reconciliation that you've accomplished with us that has turned your faith towards us, your face towards us that will never turn away. Father, as we close now in worship, would you fill our hearts with the reconciliation that you've accomplished that has brought us to you?
that would cause us to sing for joy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.